This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is brought to you by Artbase. Did you know that Artbase is the best love software in the art world? Artbase offers products that do everything you need to run your art business. Track your art and your contacts and cross-reference them. Make invoices, generate consignments, run all kinds of reports, even use it on your iPad or iPhone at art fairs or while you're away. Take it from the thousands of happy Artbase clients all over the world. Artbase is the right software for your art business. Visit ArtBase.com to find out more. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. In this week's episode, we're here with Judd Tolley, editor-at-large of Art and Auction, to recap and analyze last week's major post-war contemporary auctions in New York. Judd, it's great having you back on. How have you been? Uh, good, Adam. So far, yes. <laughs> in June, we witnessed Brexit occur, which was an unexpected result to many, not only in the art world, but around the world. And then a week later, we had the late June, early July auctions in London. In in advance of those sales, there's a lot of uncertainty about how they do. We saw even some reserve changes from consigners as a result. These November sales were just after Trump was elected president. Can you compare the mood of the art world ahead of those June-July sales versus these November sales in terms of market market sentiment, as well as the level of uncertainty uh, that existed ahead of the auctions? Well, I think um, the uncertainty um, certainly, you know, trumped, no pun intended, the uh, summer sales in London. I mean, in terms of Brexit, it was so close, um, and there was tremendous, uh, you know, concern. I mean, that was an unexpected result, of course, uh, which seems to be, you know, gaining popularity these days. Um, but basically the sales in London in late June were boosted by the, you know, steep drop of the pound and as a result of the Brexit vote, uh, you know, sort of overnight drop of the pound. So for those buyers, with dollars or other currencies pegged to anything other than the pound, it was, you know, like an overnight bargain um, in terms of uh, sales. And that really helped the sales. And I think it kind of washed away any sort of, uh, you know, anxiety. And one interesting thing I thought about those sales in London um, both the uh, Christie's and Sotheby's, they were, um, you know, relatively small. Um, and this time, Sotheby's, you know, beat out Christie's, which was kind of interesting. And, um, yeah. So let's move forward then from the summer, which seems like, you know, decades ago compared to the long, long uh, political campaign in the United States. Uh, I think most people would agree, at least on the side of the auction houses that, you know, try to gather material is that even with a week, you know, separating the election and the auction sales, which the houses smartly moved forward, um, it was a very, very tough gathering season all around because 
especially among, um, well, I don't know if you want to, I guess collectors, yeah, people who held super valuable works of art were sort of sitting on the sidelines wondering, you know, what's going to happen. So it was very, very tough to get material, <clears throat> first-rate material, top-end material, you know, in that, in both, you know, contemporary post-war as well as Impressionist modern. And uh, I have to say, not that I was expecting a bloodbath, um, the New York sales that took place last week did extraordinarily well. Uh, that said, um, it has to be noted that both the big guys, Christie's and Sotheby's, the duopoly, um, packed their evening sales with guarantees in the form of direct financial guarantees either by the house itself or in combination with third parties. I mean, I believe the uh, number count, for instance, at Sotheby's was 36 out of the roughly 64, 65 lots offered carried uh, financial backing. So it's very hard to read that, that market uh, with those kinds of, um, you know, insurance policies in place. And that term, which people get a kick out of using of, you know, coming to auction naked, meaning no financial backing, um, you know, you can sort of compare that in terms of how bidders respond to the um, guarantee sales. Because I think there is a growing sort of, uh, not in, maybe impatience or just um, lack of interest in lots that carry these um, so-called irre irre irrevocable bids. Um, and that was, you know, shown by a number of these works that came up that would basically get a single bid, not off the chandelier, but a real bid from the third party. And that was that, you know, done and dusted. Of course, there were great exceptions. Um, and uh, I could go into that, but, um, yeah. So I guess looking at the overall, looking at the sales, considering the guarantees, as you mentioned, what were some of the big takeaways if there were some in regard to the health of the art market right now? Well, I think the, the most, you know, I guess obvious is that, you know, a first class work that's fresh to the market. And this sounds like I'm, you know, advertising for the auction houses, but I mean, a truly strong work that comes up that's, you know, at the time sort of in vogue or, um, desired does, you know, tremendously well. I mean, um, the, uh, you know, poster child for this would be, um, the remarkable price for the Willem de Kooning, um, untitled 25, uh, in, um, Roman numerals from 1977 that sold at Christie's for, $66.3 million. That was estimate on request, but I think the estimate on request was around, if I'm not mistaken, around $40 million. 
So, um, and that was a record price. And considering that work, um, you know, the last time it came around, done, I think it was like something like 20 something million dollars. It's remarkable that when you get more than one, you know, guaranteed bidder, you if you get if you can create an atmosphere of competition in that late 70s, very juicy, uh, large scale paintings. And de Kooning only did about, um, I believe, from that small series, maybe seven of them um, at that scale. Uh, it's tremendously exciting. It's an tremendously exciting painting for people that are trying to get, you know, a trophy work. And I would say not that we're concentrating so much on um, Impressionist modern. It's, you know, we're looking more at the bigger contemporary post-war field. The most expensive painting of the week uh, was the um, Monet single grain stack at Christie's Impressionist Modern Sale. And that just blew through the roof. And that was expected to bring at a very aggressive unpublished estimate in the range of 45 million. It shot to a record, I don't know, it's just over $80 million. And this is not a big uh, water lilies painting that held the previous record, but a rather relatively small-scaled work that was just fantastically modern and gorgeous. So I guess the takeaway would be, you know, if the houses can bring something exceptional, um, they'll be very, you know, big prices. Again, somewhat hard to read until you drill into the small print in terms of, you know, what the, um, uh, you know, how it's coming to market. And I think the auction houses, for whatever reason, you know, they're backed by, uh, you know, large credit facilities, and they can offer a seller, um, you know, maybe reluctantly, but they can offer a seller either a straight guarantee or they can find someone out there to back it. And one more thing about that, up until this season, um, trying to figure out what kind of deals the third-party buyers or bidders, I should say, were getting, uh, you now can, uh, if you can you know, manage to do the arithmetic, you can see what kind of fees they get because that's part of the incentive for offering third parties because they get an upside on taking that risk because the at least in New York, and we'll see what happens elsewhere, the uh, New York City Department of uh, Consumer Affairs, I almost said cultural affairs, but it's consumer affairs, put pressure on the houses uh, in terms of these financial guarantees to be more transparent in reporting what the actual final price was with the buyer's premium, because oftentimes the third-party guarantors take the upside out of the buyer's premium, which is at record levels. So you can now figure out, if you want to bother, you know, exactly what um, the price was with those, you know, 
private deals, deal by deal. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, you know, if you read the small print at the back of the catalog, that's basically how the New York sales are being uh, reported now, where in the past they were really fudged because they didn't take that into account. Shortly after the auctions, we read a lot about a division in the art market between the top trophy pieces, which we've discussed, which seem to still be going strong for the most part, and then potentially some more softness below that, whether it's the day sales or the lower end of the evening sales, which is where the majority of the art market operates. So is that division in performance, is that very noticeable or is, is, it, is it that apparent or is it a little bit more complex in trying to understand what's going on in the thicker area of the market where most people are participating? No, I, I, think, I think it's not that. Um, I, I mean, there's a big gap between that, you know, whatever blue chip, very, you know, handful of works compared to the more, I don't know, I wouldn't say run of the mill, but anything that can, you know, manage to get into a day sale at Christie's or Sotheby's, you know, is, you know, it's pushing, I don't know, a million dollars. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily softer at that lower end, but, um, and it's very expensive. Um, but there's a big divide. And as a friend of mine mentioned to me in passing, um, someone who's, you know, like a pro that goes to all the day sales, you know, which takes a lot of um, fortitude after going to an evening sale, et cetera, et cetera, that um, he just remarked to me that in terms of just the uh, turnout, very, very small or less than previous seasons. And that either means that people are, you know, watching the sales, the the trade um, on their computers at their office, uh, which you can do now, or home or wherever, on your phone, wherever it is. But that, that whole sort of um, culture of, you know, the society of the art dealers who are looking for property to buy for inventory is shrinking probably because it's just too expensive. And it's again taken over more by collectors rather than um, dealers. And the day sale was traditionally the sort of juicy uh, platform for uh, dealers to, you know, build up their inventories. And so, um, you know, I think their percentage, percentage, percentage sold rate by lot was, you know, perfectly respectable. Um, but again, it's, it's, um, it is pretty, you know, it's a, it's a tough market to, to read, especially post-war and contemporary, because so many deals are, you know, done beforehand. And, um, you know, and for that reason, I think uh, some collectors, um, are opting to try to do uh, private sales either through the auction houses or through you know mainline galleries that they prefer that secondary secondary market exchange because there's just less um, you know uh, I don't know what you want to call it um, 
you know, you'd have to like break through all these sort of financial fine print um, contingencies that seem to be running the market. And I think also um, now that you've got very confusing uh, everything under one roof, uh, say at Sotheby's, with this art agency partners and Sotheby's acquisition of this private uh, advisory uh, earlier in the year for, I don't know, whatever it was, 50 million plus incentives, depending on how they do going forward, that you're now mixing up this sort of art advisory that used to be free of charge by the specialists at the houses and now trying to um, woo collectors to, you know, pay a fee to get advice from insiders compromised by being owned by Sotheby's. It's, it's a confusing terrain, at least to me, um, to see how that all sorts out. That said, um, the whopping difference from a few or maybe just one or two seasons ago in New York of Christie's crushing Sotheby's in terms of evening sales, that's, they're now neck and neck. Um, and I think, interestingly, looking back, um, Christie's did not this round have one of their special curated standalone sales to, you know, tack on another several hundred million or above um, looking forward to the past type sales or um, that they've been doing just because I think it's, you know, very difficult to source really uh, world-class works. Adrian Genny's recent market surge has been pretty fascinating to watch. His Nickelodeon painting sold for about $9 million in the summer sales and some of his works did really well again last week. What should we make of this extraordinary rise from this 40-year-old artist? Um, that's a good question. Um, and I hear a siren in the background, so maybe that's the Genie ambulance, you know, rushing to the market with the next painting. I mean, it's pretty fantastic. Um, I don't... I mean, I think he's become, you know, it's not flavor of the month exactly because he is quite a, you know, um, talented painter and has this sort of one foot in the old masters. He's smart. He knows art history. He knows what, uh, I mean, the painting that I really liked that sold, I don't know, it was like a year or two ago at, um, in London, it was sort of a, a like a Mark Rothko painting and very dramatic and dark. And and um, I don't know. I mean, the market just, you know, adores him. Um, I can recall, um, and this would have been at least five years ago, when uh, briefly, briefly, um, at the European Fine Art Fair, uh, TAFAF, in, uh, in the Netherlands, in Maastricht, uh, Haunch of Venison at the time was owned by Christie's, a gallery, and they allowed them to um, show, to have a stand in Maastricht. 
and Adrian Genny was actually in the stand, and I might be confused in terms of maybe Haunch of Venison, they might have renamed it King Street or something to um, to get past, you know, the controversy of having an auction house inside an art gallery fair. Um, but Genny was there and had some works, and they were, uh, I don't know, 40,000 euros max. And a lot of these earlier paintings that were bought up at that time are coming back and, you know, enriching um, those buyers, those early buyers. So um, I think, you know, because he's like, you know, is this guy, you know, Van Gogh, and, you know, is this guy Francis Bacon, the next Francis Bacon, is this guy, I mean, that I believe is the kind of um, murmurings that maybe, um you know, excite his prices. The other thing is that he's seemingly obsessed with these sort of, you know, like Holocaust era um, events. And from his Eastern European background, yeah, you know, he's got that Sturm und Drang, um, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, thing going for him, which a lot of artists don't. I mean, you know, it's not. Uh, zombie formalism. It's real figurative painting. And I think people relate to that. And lastly, you wrote that Philip's sale was a breakthrough sale for the auction house. What was that the case in your view? And um, what does this mean for the auction house moving forward? I mean, basically, um, for the last, I don't know how many months or over a year, under the... Um, leadership of uh, Ed Dolman, who formerly ran Christie's. Um, Phillips has been hiring high-value, high rain-making talent from Christie's and Sotheby's. And there's a lot of that going on now because, I mean, people have been leaving in droves because of, you know, all these changes. And now they're top-loaded with... Um, expertise and um, uh, sorry that's just my phone ringing I'll just ignore that um, but anyway um, kind of wondering like okay they're hiring all these you know top flight people with all this experience is that going to make a difference and I think this sale um, last week which went uh, it made just uh, just over a hundred in $11 million, tiny compared, relatively speaking, to Sotheby's, which made, well, both, you know, around $276 million, and Christie's that made around the same amount. Um, that's still significant. And especially if you consider just going back to June, and Phillips' sale in London was just over $16 million U.S., um, that's a jump. So whether they can, you know, continue that and scratch away at the duopoly and get a bit more market share, I mean, they're not expecting to, you know, take over. They just want a piece of that pie that's been completely dominated by Christie's and Sotheby's. And, you know, they've, they've certainly got the talent to do it. It's just a question of um, whether... You know the market will, uh, you know, 
not embrace them. I mean, that's, it's not like that. It's just like a business deal, but I mean, they're very smart. I mean, just one quick example, um, which I don't think either Sotheby's or Christie's would have risked. Um, they had this, uh, Liechtenstein painting, um, that had been famously attacked when it was shown in an exhibition in Austria, um, some years ago, and a woman, I guess, was offended by the nudity and had a knife and slashed the painting several times. And so it came to market, and rather than, you know, not talking about it, or only if you had requested beforehand a condition report and saw, because it was basically invisible, um, the front of the painting, um, they did a separate catalog and talked about the whole history of fantastic artworks that had been attacked, you know, and it was a clever marketing thing, which, you know, I think panned out because they did manage to sell the painting for a very respectable um, and top lot amount for just over $20 million. So um, I think that's, you know, I mean, I, I, I think they're, you know, again, I'm, I'm, they're not going to take over either of the two houses, but at least, you know, there's a bit more competition now for, for works in, you know, both 20th century and contemporary. Judd, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and recapping and analyzing last week's major contemporary and post-war sales. We always appreciate your insights and your writings, of course, can be found in Art and Auction magazine as well as online on Art Info. Thanks so much again, Judd. We appreciate it. Thanks again to ArtBase for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Did you know that ArtBase is the best love software in the art world? That's because ArtBase offers products that do everything you need to run your art business. Track your art in your contacts and cross-reference them. Make invoices, generate consignments, run all kinds of reports. Even use it on your iPhone or iPad, at art fairs, or while you're away. Take it from the thousands of happy ArtBase clients all over the world. ArtBase is the right software for your art business. Visit ArtBase.com to find out more.